And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. So today's guest is Louise Clark. Uh, Louise Clark is the senior horticulturalist employed by the Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania. And she is a, the horticultural director of Bloomfield Farm, which is actually the private side of the Arboretum, where she curates a woody plant collection that includes more than 1,200 trees and shrubs. Within the Platinum LEED Certified Horticulture Center Complex, Louise tends over 5,000 square feet of vegetative roofs. She is a green roof professional accredited by the Green Roofs for Healthy Cities and has developed a regionally appropriate palette of hardy green roof plants, which is fantastic. Her teaching duties include selecting, hiring, and instructing interns, as well as delivering horticulturally themed educational programs. As the first Arboretum participant in an international staff exchange program with the Royal Landscape Windsor England, she has gained British garden experience. Louise's membership in the GardenCom, Garden Communicators International, has provided her with opportunities to speak nationally about the value of mentoring and the documented health benefits of human connections to nature. Louise also teaches continuing education courses for Longwood Gardens in Kenneth Square, Pennsylvania, and Botany at the Barnes Institute for Horticultural Studies. As a member of the Woody Plant Conference Committee, she performs development functions for a regionally distinguished conference aimed at the green industry, professionals, students, and interested amateurs. Louise also enjoys membership in the International Society of Aboriculture. She holds degrees from Thomas Jefferson University, Temple University, and a Master's in Business Administration from DeSales University. Three tender certification from the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society and a social media marketing certificate from the University of Delaware. Wow, that's, those are some achievements, Louise. Uh, thank you for joining today, and um, we're looking forward to this discussion. Tell me a little bit about these 67 acres of trees and shrubs that uh, you manage for Morris Arboretum. Okay, the Bloomfield Farm property was purchased in the early 1900s by the Arboretum's founder, uh, John Morris. It has a number of historical features there. We have an historic mill that dates to 1854, and the foundations of that actually date back to 1751. Um, there's an historic farmhouse, which is the residence for the executive director. There's Miller's Cottage, which is the residence for another senior administrator. Um, and I have a number of different things there. There are old fields, because Bloomfield Farm formerly was a farm until about maybe the early 1950s. There are, so now there are a number of old fields, there are meadows that I tend, but it's also home to 1,200 accession woody trees and shrubs. And this complements the 
collection that's on the public garden side. Uh, one of the interesting things I think about the farm, and I'm assuming that our founder, John, knew this, is that the soils are very different. And the main public mm -hmm. gardens across the street, you know, separated by only a road, yet we have um, very different soils where I am. We're in a very thin band of limestone that if you were to look at a, um, like a geologic map of soils or rock strata, you would see this very thin band runs through the southeast part of the state of Pennsylvania. So I have very rich limestone soils, which are great for agriculture, but they also present some challenges such as sinkholes. Does that impact um, soil pH? I've always wondered if you had to do soil testing and amendments to get some of your new tree introductions established. Well, the soil chemistry is different. Have I tested? No, not recently. But it's interesting also in the northern part of Bloomfield Farm, we have a collection of oak trees called the Corsetum. Um, and those were all grown from acorns starting in the early 1950s. And it's really interesting to look at them. Uh, some of them look very, very unhappy being on those types of soils. Uh, and others have become majestic, you know, grand old trees. So it really does affect how plants grow. And I think that's the real benefit of putting plants into both parts of the arboretum if you want to compare their performance. I see. Tell us about uh, the incredible collection that the Morris continues to do, particularly with some of the international uh, seed collecting. I know that's been the mission from the get-go, and there's some awesome trees that you won't find anywhere else at Bloomfield Farms. <laughs> well, yeah, that is definitely the mission of the Arboretum, is to collect in other areas of the Northern Hemisphere that has a similar climate. So our collectors bring back seed uh, to hopefully find trees and shrubs that are amenable to our climate. There are a number of things going in the, the hoop houses and nurseries. We have, I say, a number of different Chinese species uh, that over the years have been evaluated for their, um, you know, their benefit or lack thereof um, in our garden. So one tree I'm thinking of in particular is uh, Tuna sinensis, the Chinese tune tree. Um, and I'd had a number of those at Bloomfield Farm, and they were very successful, but they were found to be potentially invasive in the public garden side and in my section. Um, so the tuna trees were removed from Bloomfield Farm, uh, and it took a number of years to actually make them go away. They were very happy to send up prolific root sprouts. Mm. And we still do have a grove in the public garden that you can see. And again, they're very prolific seeders. So based on our experience with that particular tree, we would not recommend you put that in your public garden or your private landscape. The tune tree gets a green thumbs down. Uh, very much so. Okay. <laughs> Does it, would it ever have an application as a street tree um, in some of our residential row house neighborhoods, or should we just forget about it? Well, possibly it would work there in an urban environment. It wouldn't have the opportunity to spread itself around. Uh, right. And also, um, I have a number of Zelkovas at Bloomfield Farm, which have really been touted as great street trees, a replacement for our elms that were devastated by Dutch elm disease. And I say it's true in that urban environment, but in Bloomfield Farm, under the canopy of the Zelkovas I have is nothing but a forest of small Zelkova seedlings. <laughs> so, you know, depending on the setting, I would be hesitant to recommend that tree also. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, whenever you go to a workshop these days, uh, it's still the hot button topic, isn't it, Louise? The uh, invasive versus uh, native species. You know, people in the audience, hands go up, the questions get asked. Any wisdom, I'm sure you have it, to share about that argument? Uh, native versus non-native? Yeah. Um, I think with so much human impact over the globe, you know, we have taken plants everywhere with us with human migration. And, you know, just the, the definition of nativity, you can't get people to agree on that. So, you know, one are things native, you know, so some people here might say, well, that goes back to the era of maybe, you know, Western colonies, colonists, um, or does it go back to indigenous peoples? So we have that difficulty right there to define what's native. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we can also make really robust, successful, contrived ecosystems with plants that grow well together, and they don't all necessarily have to have the same nativity. Right. But again, you know, really native um, proponents will argue against that. A good example, I think, of that is uh, Parodia persica, or the, the uh, Persian Parodia, which I think is a really fantastic uh, introduction from uh, Iran, uh, and it is very mindful of its location. It doesn't see in, and it, it does really well in our riparian areas and uh, gives really wonderful winter interest. So, you know, there are trees that do really, really well, and they do mind their manners. Uh, I think even some of our, our, our natives can be pretty aggressive, but I think that there's an imbalance in systems that actually make things aggressive or less aggressive, depending on what kind of conditions you have. And, and as you were saying earlier, Louise, that on the Bloomfield farm side, you had some oaks that did well and others that didn't do well. Uh, and I think that that's something to also take note of. Uh, uh, I had a picture of, um, posted on my Instagram account, a picture of an Alanthus growing directly out of asphalt in a parking lot uh, by the post office. And I had so many comments on that one. Uh, you know, how does something like that grow? Well, we couldn't get a native to grow there, but something that's aggressive can. So case in point. Um, do you do a lot of plant planting of trees over at um, Bloomfield Farm? Because we are about the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast, so we need to know a little bit about what you're planting. Uh, well, I do contribute to that effort on a small scale. Even though I have 67 acres and it's called Bloomfield Farm, I'm pretty well planted up. So I remind my curator, Tony Aiello, that sometimes I think of it as Bloomfield Forest. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but our, our plant outs usually are spring and fall, where our curator, Tony, will send out a list of plants that are available in the hoop house to go out. And he may have an area in mind for that, which he will write on the spreadsheet. But for most of those, he just puts a question mark and says where. So we, as the horticulturists, will look through that list, decide is there something we really want, and request that, send the list back to Tony, and then... Oh, this year I'll say by mid or late September, he'll send us back a final list of what we are to plant and where. You know, I'm pretty full at this point, so if I get 10 to 12 plants at the most, that would be a lot because I need to consider their mature size as trees. Although this has been a particularly hard summer for some of my veteran trees at Bloomfield Farm. Um, I've had some major oak damage on two of my oaks. I've just had another chestnut topple over. 
um, that was one of the hybrids in the 1950s. But chestnut um, oak. Um, no, no, no. Well, chestnut and oak. Mm. So I've lost part of the Bartram oak. I've lost part of Corcus acutissima. And I've lost one of the big um, chestnut hybrids that sits just west of the horticulture center. Um, so as much as I hate to see those trees go, they end up being planting opportunities. The, the chestnuts that you have there on campus, those were some of the very early hybrids that were created with back crosses from the American chestnut and the Chinese chestnut, right? Yes, that's correct. And I have an allay of them, maybe uh, nine to 10 of them, and they fruit and, you know, fl they flower and fruit every year. They're really disease resistant. They look beautiful. And I bet it's a very happy squirrel community out there. And deer too, I guess, right? For your uh, yes, yes, especially since the arboretum has now excluded deer from the public side, uh, I have more visitors as a result. Nice, that's great. <laughs> uh, and they're great gardeners. They prune to a very specific height. Last year, I got to see the uh, collection of live oak, um, and of course, I'm drawing a blank on its botanical name. But uh, wasn't there some seed collection done in Northern Virginia or portions down around Roanoke that you guys are now cultivating? Yes, that's correct. And again, our curator, Tony Aiello, was on that collecting trip, brought the acorns back. They were germinated by our propagator and um, you know, went into the medicinal house originally, which has cool but not freezing temperatures over winter. And then approximately three, it might be four years ago now, the saplings came out and they're planted out into the nursery that's on the Bloomfield Farm site. And they've had three, four winters out there and our winters have not really proven them yet. We've had right. pretty mild conditions, but it's very interesting to look at them because they have you know, genetic deference and some are more shrubby, some look like they're going to be more single stem trees. Mm. And I would think soon, probably within the next year, it'll be time to start to plant them out into our collection and see how they perform. Right. Yeah, it seems like we're kind of due for a hardcore winter of old and they'll get tested. You, you also have a, a fantastic uh, collection of uh, southern magnolias that have been there for quite a while. And uh, for, I mean, at least 30, 35 years ago, I remember you really, there weren't a lot of hardy um, southern magnolias in this area, or otherwise you had to plant them in protected spots. Um, tell us a little bit about that particular tree on, on the Bloomfield farm side. Okay, again, there's a collection of southern magnolias uh, that was planted as a hardiness trial. We have three different cultivars and they actually stand very close to the nursery area and they make a beautiful evergreen screen where they are. Um, all three of those cultivars are hardy and otherwise they wouldn't be there today. And some of them really have outstanding indumentum, which is the brown fuzziness on the underside of the leaves. Uh, and there's one in particular, and of course I forget the cultivar, but I just drove by that the other day and looked at that. It's really amazing because you can see more of that bottom surface of the leaf upturned. So you get the contrast of that rich chocolate brown with the glossy mm -hmm. dark green leaves and periodically it throws those huge bowl-like white lemon scented flowers during the summer. They truly are magnificent. That sounds great. I was just at uh, uh, St. Joseph's University this morning doing some uh, photographing and they had a, a looked like a Bracken's Brown Beauty that was 
covered with uh, buds ready to open. So it looked like it was having its second really big burst of bloom. And wow, I could, can't even imagine what it's going to smell like in a day or two. <laughs> Is that a thing, Louise? I've noticed Southern Magnolias putting out a second flush of uh, flower buds as well. You know, I think it is. I've, I see my own summer and they kind of put out a, a bloom here and there. But I've, I've observed the same thing that Eva is seeing, that it looks like there's going to be a second flush. So can we say this is climate related? <laughs> I would guess so. I'm sure the bees appreciate it. Very much so. Well, you know, just in the in in the, all the years that I've been in the industry, things that have disappeared from this area are the... Um, the Canadian hemlock, uh, we used to have thousands of them and you barely see any at all because of climate change and of course woolly adelgid. Uh, that's just one example of, of what we don't have anymore because it's too hot here. We also see the retreating of uh, uh, Colorado blue spruce or Colorado spruce. Uh, retreating and having that horrible uh, needle cast disease that affects it in the heat. Uh, and I think that we're just going to see more and more of that and uh, uh, more of the southern species creeping up into our area. And of course, that's, that's wonderful, really, that we could have plant creep. Um, but it's also very sad when we, we don't see uh, our old favorites that uh, we used to see years ago. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it'd be, we could start to compile a list. I mean, the uh, Betula papyrifera is another one, you know, white bark birches. And I remember it's like, oh, bronze birch borer. Uh, and then it became less of a pest issue and more of, uh, you know, a series of 90 degree days and uh, nights that didn't drop below 80. Yeah, that's true. I've just noticed the birches and at Bloomfield Farm. They're pretty much all defoliated now. Just, you know, I, I'm sure that's heat stress. And yeah. some of them have had borer earlier. The other species that's really taken it on the chin is a lot of malice. A lot of oh. the uh, fruit-bearing apples and uh, crab apples, they're just, they can't handle this humidity. Mm. We're going into the gloom and doom portion of the podcast. <laughs> Well, but I also think it helps the listeners to know that there are really great trees to plant too. And this, this brings me to the question that Hal and I like to ask our listeners is, uh, uh, what are some of your favorite trees? Because I, we have a sneaky feeling that you don't just like one, you like lots of them. Top 10? That would be good. This is like Sophie's choice. Who's my favorite? Yeah. Um, well, certainly in the Arboretum on the public side, our signature tree is the Katsura, where there's oh. Cercidophyllum. Um, and that is just an amazing tree. That's my favorite tree in the Arboretum. It has a beautiful branching canopy of 80 feet in diameter or width, I guess. Um, they have wonderful bench you can sit under there. And if your listeners don't know, in the autumn when the leaves begin to change, it emits a wonderful like cotton candy or burnt sugar smell. It's a fabulous fragrance. So that's one of my favorites. Um, like I said, there are just too many to choose. I certainly like the lace bark pines that I tend on Bloomfield Farm. And again, there are some very beautiful ones. They're amazing, exfoliating and colorful bark. Gives you interest all season long. I could go on with all sorts of things. You know, Stuartius have fabulous bark. Um, I also like my Himalayan pine for those long bluish needles. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, so, so is the Korean pines beautiful, too, because that has a really glaucous appearance to it as well. Yes, because we have a cultivar Morris Blue of Pinus coriana. Um, and I have a small one growing in the Arboretum on, well, on my side, on Bloomfield Farm right now, that's putting on some nice height. They're very, very nice to look at. In recent weeks, we've had some major storms. And again, this afternoon, we're supposed to have some rip-roaring storms coming through. I just heard the news just before we came on air. And I am um, hoping that our tree communities stay where they are, um, but that might not happen. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you do or how you prepare for storms at the Arboretum. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I'm cognizant of what the weather's supposed to do. We look at forecasts, um, and because we have arborists on staff, uh, our tree care is, is, you know, is good. So we can eliminate potential hazards, hopefully. Uh, structurally, we prune young trees so they have good form and will be storm resistant. And we do certainly appraise our older trees and in the public garden, especially where there's more of a threat, which means we have more visitors, you know, our trees do get regular care. But there are certainly surprises as I've seen this summer um, with two pretty gusty, windy storms that have come through that I've lost like major branches from the Bartram Oak and the uh, Corcus acutissima that were totally unexpected losses. So that, and I stay out from under the canopies in windy storms. Yes, I know. I always feel like that's a public service that we need to start sharing because uh, whether it's Darwin or whatever, some people are still going to be out on Forbidden Drive uh, in, in the Wissahickon with big weather coming up. And boy, oh boy, if you, I'm sure you're getting to hear it. Uh, the winds come up slicing across Bloomfield and you must hear the crack of limbs breaking. No, that has happened, yes. And, yeah. uh, um, it's kind of a scary thing. Uh, Absolutely. Kind of, kind of brings me to the point of being proactive rather than reactive. And uh, in light of all the storms that we've had, um, you know, maybe some of the, maybe some of the major uh, fall downs could have been averted with uh, proactive care, uh, reduction of uh, heavy weight on limbs, and, uh, you know, those are things that I think of. And um, we've always been a reactive uh, society, but we really need to be proactive if we want to increase our, our forest within the urban setting. And I wondered what your thoughts are on that, Louise. Well, yeah, I totally agree. Now to get people to see the value of that and spend money uh, is another thing. But I, I know on the Quercus acutissima, my sawtooth oak that just had a major failure, that has had canopy reduction. And you know it's been assessed by professional arborists and yet it failed in a spot where I don't think anybody maybe could have predicted that. However, now with the advent of drones, if we can get up uh, and have aerial views and look into the canopy and see structure, I think there's a valuable new tool that we should be adding to our armamentarium as arborists. Do you know what that failure was, Louise, on that acutissima? Was it a, a split of a, at a stem attachment point? It was, yes. And yeah. now that it's open, you can see there must have been some, mm. some rot in there where moisture was able to accumulate um, and weaken the tissue, and it just split right out. I see. 
It was the Bender Oak uh, at Morris Arboretum that was there for such a long time. And, and they were caring after that like a baby, but that succumbed to wind also, right? Yes, that also had a veteran um, tree management plan and was, um, you know, tended very closely with reductions. Uh, I believe it had some cabling. Um, and fortunately, when blims did break apart, they were when the arboretum was not open. But it finally got to the point where it's deemed too much of a hazard for the public, and sadly, we had to remove that. Yeah. Um, one uh, one other question I have for you um, is the fact that um, you know most people don't know that Morris Arboretum is the state arboretum of Pennsylvania, and the importance of arboreta across the country for the public, not only for professionals, but um, you know. Why should we continue to um, support botanic gardens and arboreta, for that matter? Well, the Morris Arboretum is certainly a living tree museum. Um, so we are doing some ex situ con conservation, meaning we can bring plants in from threatened environments and grow them here, give them a place. Um, hopefully have germplasm that we can share with other institutions or individuals. So we give trees a home. We're partly there to educate the public on the value of trees. How do they serve our communities in our urban environments? Um, so we do a lot of education and outreach. Um, plus in the pandemic times now, uh, we've really seen people express a need to come out into nature, uh, to de-stress, to deal with this. And, and while we were closed to the public in March and April, and even into May, we've reopened now, and our public is very much happy to be back with us. That's great. I, I'm so glad that you were able to join us today. And uh, Hal, do you have any last-minute questions? No, I'm just sending good thoughts to uh, Bloomfield Farms with uh, our next weather-related event, because <laughs> it seems like that's the new reality. And uh, uh, I guess one anecdote I'll share quickly this morning was being on a property uh, of a actually a client who's a Philadelphia fireman and I'm looking at he's got big black locusts and I'm starting to think this is just not a good tree for a resident r residential if it's got any target because it's uh, right up there as far as a heavily branched heavy timber and shallow stubby roots and um, it's going to be uh, a tree that is right up there at the top of the list as a candidate for failure. I ended on a gloom and doom note. Well, well, I'm going to lift that doom and gloom, and I'm going to say, Louise, we hope you come back and visit us again and bring us some really wonderful news from Morris, and uh, and we look forward to that. Yeah, Louise, well, it's always so great talking to you. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to talk today. Thanks, guys. Thank you.